This morning and uh, tonight, we are going to address the thorny and complex issue of same-sex attraction, homosexuality. Tonight, uh, we are going to, uh, to, to approach it. In fact, uh, Ben Bailey was the one that gave me the idea for the, the title of the message tonight. We're going to call it uh, Around the Water Cooler. And basically what we're going to do tonight is to address some of the issues that come up in, in uh, private conversation at work around the water cooler that sometimes um, uh, we might know the answer to or might have a response to and, and, and at other times uh, might not. And so what we want to do tonight is to look at some of those specific issues. We're not going to go deep, deep, deep into depth because of, of time, but we are going to, uh, to address several issues that deal with the subject of same-sex attraction as we find it in our culture. Now, uh, I know that um, uh, we have a lot of our kids that are at Sparks right now. Tonight, if, uh, if you've got kiddos, we're going to have a, a special time of, of worship for our little ones over in the, uh, the Sparks room. And I'll dismiss the kiddos when we do announcements. If you get here about the, the beginning of the assembly and the, the time for the announcements, I'll just be a reminder that you can take your kiddos all the way up through the fifth grade to that room. And, uh, and that will uh, kind of uh, give us the opportunity to, to think about these things, um, uh, hopefully in a way that's going to be very, very meaningful to everybody in our church family. What we want to do, though, right now is to ask God to bless us as we, we tackle this subject this morning and tonight and ask for his blessing upon us as students of his word. Father, whenever we, we think about the gospel, our hearts just overflow with love and thankfulness and gratitude and a desire for worship and to adore you and to praise you, Father. For you have, have brought us out of, out of our, our state of lostness and have brought us into relationship with you as your children. We are your children. You are our Father for all of eternity. And we are grateful for the love that makes it so and for the mercy and for the message that you have not only brought into reality through your Son, the Christ, but have entrusted to us to share with all of humanity a message of hope and a message of the most profound of loves to be experienced in this world. And what we're grateful for, Father, is that you bless us even to this day with eyes to see and ears to hear, to understand and to move and to grow and to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that is what we pray for this morning. And we pray it in the name of Jesus and all the church said. The uh, latest decision of the Supreme Court of the United States has accentuated the widening cultural gap in our country as regards same-sex marriage. While this is not to be uh, unexpected in a nation that is pushing God more and more to the fringes, what it has done is expose among God's people the, uh, the, the division that exists on the question of what the Bible really teaches about homosexuality and same-sex attraction. In our own church family, in our own congregation, we have those who believe that homosexuality is absolutely okay for lots of reasons. It doesn't hurt anyone. The mistreatment of homosexuals is unfair and unjust. 
the teachings are antiquated and not relevant to modern society, modern culture. Jesus himself never said much about homosexuality. And quite frankly, to be anti um, this uh, same-sex attraction is to be on the wrong side of history. There are other folks who are not really sure what to think because they've never really studied it much, and the reason they never really studied it much is because they don't know anyone who struggles, or at least they don't think they know anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction. There are others who just want the subject to go away because they hate conflict and they hate confrontation. We also have those who are very much anti-gay, but primarily for political reasons. They have an agenda. We also have uh, folks that, that are, are very vocal and, and, and very anti-same-sex attraction because, and this is, this is not something that's said out loud and, and maybe not even realized, but it's maybe at a subconscious level, there's a thinking that if I'm down on gay people, then I don't really have to deal with my own pet sins. Also, we have uh, brothers and sisters in our churches who struggle with same-sex attraction in silence and alone, and most of the time without any help or any support or any compassion or mercy. There are other reasons as well. So three things before we get into the study this morning. First, the national uncivil discourse that has polarized our nation must never, ever, ever make its way into our church family. Public discourse, as you know, Public discourse is insistently, emphatically, and demandingly ideological. If you don't agree with me, then I will mock you out of existence. Secondly, it's important for us not to panic. There's no, there's no need for us to panic. The decision of the Supreme Court of the United States did not trump the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The tomb is still empty and God is still sovereign in the universe that He Himself created. The gospel of God has not been found false, but is being given ample opportunity to be experienced as the power. The power of God to save and transform all people. And then thirdly, remember that God, it is always God, it's always God, not culture, that speaks into our hearts and minds. Now, just a, a word or two uh, about terminology before we move on. Although the Bible does not, and neither should we, identify a person according to their sexual orientation, that's really kind of a component and an element of Western thinking, we do need to clarify same-sex attraction describes a person as homosexual but who has not entered into that lifestyle. Not everyone who suffers or struggles or, or, or deals with a same-sex attraction acts on it, where, on the other hand, the, the terminology gay describes a person who has entered into a homosexual lifestyle. Now, as we said, we're going to approach this question, and we're going to approach it slowly and, and frankly and, and deliberately, and we're going to do it by thinking about two questions. The first one is, what does the Bible teach? And then secondly, how, how are we as a church to respond in, in the culture, in this city in particular, in, in this age? How do, how do we respond to this? Well, number one, what does the Bible teach? 
One important fact to keep in mind is that homosexuality is not the core theme of the Bible. Homosexuality is not the core theme of the Bible. There are basically half a dozen texts that deal with homosexuality in the Bible. They are, if you want to write them down, Genesis chapter 19, the first 19 verses or so, story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude, over in the New Testament, Jude chapter 1 and verse 7 is sort of commentary on, on Lot's spiritual experience of, of, that, of that city. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, two chapters later, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13 deal with this subject. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, and then finally, Romans chapter 1, verses 17 through 32 that, that Ben just read for us. Uh, at, during our scripture reading. Now again, we do not have time to deal with all of these individually, so I'm going to concentrate on what I consider to be the critical text, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 17 through 32. It is this particular text in the New Testament where Paul gives sort of a theological explanation as to what's happening in the world as regards to this subject. There are four words that we'll use to, uh, to center, to tether our thinking to. The first one is the word gospel. You can write it down on your outline. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says that the gospel is God's power in the world working out His purposes. In Romans, the gospel is what connects people in the present with what's going to happen in eternity. What's happening now in the world and the time and the age, the community they live in, with what's going to be happening in eternity. But also in Romans, the gospel is what begins to transform people, to change people, to sanctify people, to transform people into what they will look like in that future. In Romans, this is how God's righteousness is being revealed. His righteousness is being revealed in the fact that God is not destroying, but saving and transforming and reestablishing humans in relationship with Him. But then you drop down to verse 18, just two verses later, and Paul uses the opposite word. In our English translations, it's the word wickedness. It's literally the word unrighteousness to describe human beings. Where God is righteous, human beings are unrighteous. Or the word as it's translated, human beings are wicked. Now the question is, okay, Paul, we, get, we understand that this is about God's righteousness and we understand what, you know, that there's, there's a problem with human beings. Why are human beings, the question is, literally unrighteous? The opposite of God. The answer is this. The fundamental reason is rejection of God. Or to use one of Paul's words, humans, when it comes to God, make a bad, and here's the second word, exchange. Here are two of the three instances of the word exchange in Romans chapter 1, verses 21, 22, and 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. You drop down two more verses, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They're exchanging truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God 
for a lie. The root human problem is not sin, per se, but rebelling against the reality of God. In other words, human beings are swapping God out, the Creator, the Father, the Savior out for something else. And as we know from our study of Romans chapter 1, what happens is God therefore steps back, the languages, He gives them over, and the result of that exchanging God, of swapping God out for something else, is that thinking becomes futile, Hearts become darkened, and idolatry takes root in the absence of God in the human heart. And then what Paul begins to do in verse 24, saying this is what's happening. God is evident. People have a possession of the knowledge of God, and what they're doing is ejecting that and rejecting that and rebelling against that in order to put something else in their heart. And so in verse 24, what we find is Paul beginning to document the distortion of human beings, of creatures, when they reject the Creator. And there's a long list, as, as you know from our study of Romans and from Ben's reading this morning, there is a long list of sins. Greed and envy and murder and strife and malice and gossip and arrogance. And to Paul, the quickest and most graphic way to see this distortion and to see this human confusion is in the area of human sexuality and how it has moved disastrously from the original intent. Now in your Bibles, in verse 25 of Romans chapter 1, Paul references God as, he references creation and he references God as creator. And what he's doing is he's taking people who understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and he's calling them back to think about creation. He's calling them back to creation theology. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, at creation, God created humans, male and female. In verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1, he says to the male and female, be fruitful and multiply. You go to the second chapter of Genesis, the very last verse, and he says, men and women are created for each other. He says specifically that a young man will leave his mother and father and cleave or be united to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. That's the end of chapter 2. Now we enter into Genesis chapter 3, and within six verses, everything is, is fantastic. It's, it's creation, and everything is new, and everything is complementary, and, and everything is, is pristine and without sin. And then within six verses, God and God's truth are exchanged for a lie. Did God really say that you should not eat of that particular tree? He said we shouldn't even touch it, which He didn't really say. Well, God must be nuts if you don't eat of that how are you ever going to be a god yourself the lie being that god is not a good creator that he's not a good god that he doesn't have human best interest at heart but that what he really has is to hold them down and to tamp them down and to tie them down and that is when sin enters into the world when god's truth is exchanged for a lie which brings us to words 3 and 4, natural and unnatural. Now back in Romans 1, Paul illustrates the exchanging of the truth of God for a lie in verse 25 in the exchange of natural 
for unnatural relationships in the area of human sexuality. These terms natural and unnatural were used for a couple of different things, but they were used in the, in, in the ancient world to distinguish between homosexual and heterosexual behavior. Homosexual behavior was, was present in the ancient world and not, not merely in the abusive or excessive senses. Notice the terminology that's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, inflamed with lust one for another. That is the language of mutuality or consensuality. It's one for another. And this is, uh, you know, for Paul, homosexual behavior along with envy and greed and deceit and gossip and slander in the Romans 1 list is a proof of the diagnosis that humans have not only rebelled and moved away from God, but they are alienated from God. That these things in this list are the very things that created the spiritual crisis that made the death of Jesus on the cross necessary. All of these are very serious rebellions against God the Creator. And so Paul will say to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. There are actually two words in this text that, uh, that are translated this way. Uh, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor sla uh, slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For Paul, this behavior is, is part of the spiritual crisis that makes the cross of Jesus necessary for human beings to find their way back to God. So how do the people of the gospel who believe the gospel respond? What are we as a church to do? We welcome all people. We welcome all people. To ask if a homosexual person can become a member of the church is like asking if an envious person or a greedy person or an adulterer or an alcoholic or a racist can be a member of the church. De facto, in many places, they already are. Nothing in Scripture indicates that a line of exclusion must be drawn in the sand for the homosexual and the homosexual only. The fact that Paul has to remind the church in Corinth not to revert back to these behaviors, sexual immorality, including homosexuality and adultery, as well as theft and drunkenness and greed, swindlers, all of this indicates that the temptations and desires were lingering and still being fought against. But one of the things the church must not do is demand that a person struggling with same-sex attraction not act on the same-sex attraction impulses for relationship and love while at the same time withholding friendship and community and relationship and help. The church should never doom those who struggle with same-sex attraction to loneliness. The church must become the place where discipleship is encouraged through godly relationships. The church is where people battle for personal holiness and godliness together. The church must be the family for the one who has to honor God with his or her body through celibacy, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual. An analogy. 
there is evidence that there are humans who are genetically predisposed to alcoholism. And once they have been exposed to alcohol, the attraction is so overwhelmingly powerful that it becomes destructive to them and to those around them. The fact that this is so powerful is seen in that it must be counteracted by wise and truthful words, total abstinence, and inside of a community of people. We welcome everyone who through the gospel wants to find God and to become the person that God always created them to be. Number two, we must watch the judgment, my friends. We must watch the judgment. I listened to a sermon that was recommended to me several weeks ago by a a fellow by the name of J.D. Greer who gave, I think, one of the best explanations of Jesus' teaching on judge not lest you too will be judged in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He said, you judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them. This includes derogatory ways of referring to homosexuals. We cannot create a culture where people who struggle to become holy cannot be honest about their life. Dismissing people was not the way of Jesus, even though he called all people to a higher life. One of the ironies of the life of Christ is that he and he only lived a perfect life without sin, without blemish. He never, ever, ever objectified a woman in the lust of his mind. He never lashed out in anger because someone frustrated him or caused him pain. He never had road rage with the chariots. He He never messed up on any of the laws. He was truly, truly, truly righteous. And at the same time, in his perfection and without blemishness, he called all people to live in a high degree of righteousness. He said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that if you want to be my disciple, this is how you live. Your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, here's the irony. He was perfect. And he called people to follow him and to, and, to, and to walk in his steps and to live according to his standard. And yet, and here's the irony, people flocked to him in crowds and multitudes. And not only good people, but some of the worst sorts in the mind of the ancient world, he welcomed them. Matthew chapter 9, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and 37. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, a prostitute, a person messed up on sex, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Do we really believe that the church is a place 
Do we really believe that the MacArthur Park Church of Christ is a place that is populated by perfect people? In reality, the church is populated by people who are honest and who recognize their own wretchedness in light of God's holiness and rely on the gospel and God's spirit as their hope. None of us are perfect, but we are all struggling with our own fallen nature in the power of God's Spirit. The dominant core culture of our church cannot be ethnic or political or certain economic level. The core, the dominant core culture of our church has to be the gospel. It's one thing to say that the church is a place for people to find God. But again, it's another thing altogether for the church to be a place where people can be honest. And that begins when we, number three, love all people. It's possible, folks, to love and to befriend and to serve our homosexual neighbors while at the same time recognizing that homosexual behavior is outside God's will. A a, a quote from C.S. Lewis, I think, helps us here. He wrote in Mere Christianity, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions but not hate the bad man, or as they would say, hate the sin but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. End of quote. How do we love the homosexual or any other human being for that matter? As a fellow sinner equally in need of God's gospel to save and transform. How do we love sinners? as one sinner to another. In this, we love all people, including those who struggle with same-sex attraction, and tell them the truth. The truth in, in, in truth and grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what Paul did in Corinth. Listen again. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If a person has actively entered into a homosexual lifestyle, and as Paul says, will not enter the kingdom of God, what is the loving thing to do? Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth about God and God's love and God's grace and the offer to experience that love. That's what Paul did. Look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A fellow by the name of Sam Alberry writes, however ingrained it may be in someone's behavior, homosexual conduct is not inescapable. It is possible for someone living a practicing gay lifestyle to be made new by God. End of quote. Now, the powerful thing in that statement for me is, comes from the fact that Sam Alberry lives as a celibate Christian with same-sex attraction. The big question for us as a church is how do we get to the that is what some of you were? And I think it kind of begins with demonstrating a greater Jesus. In John chapter 8, encounter the story of a woman caught in adultery. She's caught in a sexual sin. She's caught in a, uh, a sin in which she is messed up on sex. And she's caught in the very act. And she's dragged before Jesus in all of her guilt. And they say to him, you know what Moses says? Moses says you ought to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus says, the one without sin do what? cast the first stone. And as they think about that, the oldest to the youngest drop their stones and begin to leave. Now there's just Jesus and the woman. And he asks, where are your accusers? She replies, they're gone, sir. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now here's the thing. Remember, Jesus is the one who never messed up on any of the laws. He is perfect. He is the one who has the right to cast the first stone. Jesus had the right to condemn her to death, but he doesn't. But notice the order. He accepts her before he tells her to leave her life of sin. My friends, at the core of all our doctrines is a love like Jesus. At the core of all of our doctrines is a love like Jesus. One of the religious experts of Jesus' time came up to him one day with a question and asked, uh, Teacher, what do you say? What, what do all of the doctrines and all of the laws and all of the commandments boil down to? And Jesus says, You love God and you love people. That's the starting point. If we in God's kingdom are calling the folk in our community that struggle with same-sex uh, same attraction to a life of celibacy because a heterosexual life is out of the question, then we had better show that a celibate life is a small price to pay for the abundance of blessing that comes in knowing Christ. We need to do a better job of showing a greater Christ who offers His gospel to all. It's time for us to sing. And we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. And if there are ways that our church might minister to you and, and pray for you and, and counsel you or even bring you into a relationship with God Himself through Christ, through baptism and repentance and confession and God's Spirit coming to live in you, then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds now as we stand and sing together. Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us. Set us free by the truth 